Hello and welcome to episode 29 in our ongoing series, The Tale of Space Cat Burritos. I'm Coraline Ada Emke, and I am joined today by Astrid County. Thank you, Coraline, but I'm pretty sure that our show is called Greater Than Code. You're such a joy kill. <laughs> sorry. I'm also here today. Is that kill joy? I always get to that big stuff, sorry. <laughs> joy kill sounds way cooler. I'm also here with Rain Henricks. Hi, and I'm pretty sure that they are called Peritos. <laughs> uh, I am here with our three guests today. I'm very excited about this. I have Ariel Waldman, Ash Dryden, and Brad Griziak. Ariel sits on the Council for NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, a program that nurtures radical science fiction-inspired ideas that could transform future space missions. She is the co-author of a congressionally requested National Academy of Sciences report on the future of human spaceflight and the author of the book What's It Like in Space? Stories from Astronauts Who've Been There. Ariel is the founder of SpaceHack.org, a directory of ways for anyone to participate in space exploration, and the global director of Science Hack Day, a grassroots endeavor to prototype things with science that is now in over 25 countries. In 2013, Ariel received an honor from the White House for being a champion of change in citizen science. Ash Dryden is a programmer of over 15 years, turned diversity advocate and consultant, White House fellow, a prolific writer and speaker. She is the founder of AlterConf and co-founder of Fun Club. Ash is currently writing two books, The Diverse Team and The Inclusive Event. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Scientific American, Wired, NPR, and more. Brad is CEO and co-founder of BendyWorks, an application development consultancy in Madison, Wisconsin. He started his career as a mechanical aerospace engineer and has at least one payload in space. He now seeks out better and better ways to write robust yet flexible software from BendyWorks' clients, from Fortune 100 enterprises to brand new startups. So welcome, Ariel, Ash, and Brad. Thank you. Thanks. This is such a cool lineup of people. I know. It's pretty crowded in here. <laughs> yeah, some of my favorite people are here today. So this is really great. We like to start off by getting to know, like, everyone here has an amazing resume and an amazing list of accomplishments and really interesting backgrounds. And we like to get to know, like, who you are behind the scenes, who you are behind your public profile, and kind of what makes you tick. So, Brad, I know you got your start in space technology, in rockets, and I know you from outside of the podcast in your I see the enthusiasm you get whenever there's a SpaceX launch. What got you interested in space? Well, I'm actually in Florida right now. And the thing that got me uh, excited about space was when I was in Florida at age, I don't know, five or six, we had a family vacation to Disney World. And uh, on the last day, we're sitting in the hotel watching TV and there's a shuttle launch going on right at that moment. And I had the bright idea to go to the window, look out it. And sure enough, out in the distance, I could see a tiny plume rising into the, the sky. And that was the moment I think that I got really excited about the idea of space. And unlike a lot of other kids who say, I want to be an astronaut, my initial thought was I want to be a rocket scientist. So I kind of followed that throughout my, uh, my schooling and ended up working at an aerospace firm as a college. So cool. And Ariel, you've done quite a bit of scientific work yourself. What got you started on that path? So actually, I, I don't have a background in science whatsoever. Um, I went to art school and I got my degree in graphic design. But a few years ago, I was watching a, a documentary about NASA during the early days and how they were trying to figure out how to send people into space. And I got 
<clears throat> so incredibly inspired by that documentary that I, you know, decided that I wanted to um, send someone at NASA an email saying that I was a huge fan of what they were doing. And if they ever needed a volunteer or someone like me that I was around and I uh, serendipitously and very unexpectedly ended up getting a job at NASA from that email. And so it completely uh, changed my life and really set me on a trajectory to try and give other people uh, the same experience of uh, making space exploration more accessible, whether it's getting a job at NASA or contributing to discovering galaxies and the like. And Ash, you're best known for your diversity work. What's your connection to space? Space is really cool. Growing up, I actually wanted to be a marine biologist. And since I was in about fourth grade, I was super interested in all different aspects of science, especially ones that we didn't know everything about. The idea that there was more stuff out there to learn and to discover and, and something that we hadn't quite placed on a map yet uh, was really fascinating to me. Um, so it kind of falls into the category of completely fascinating and in love with, you know, the idea of exploring and learning and discovering new things for me. Awesome. And we're going to talk about more than space, but I, there's this like common thread that I think is worth kind of um, exploring right now. So I actually had a run in with NASA when I was in my formative years. When I was in high school, my computer literacy teacher told me about a program called the Explorers Program, which was like a scouts program. And I had an opportunity to go learn Fortran at NASA Langley. So twice a week, my dad had to drive me out to um, Langley Air Force Base to go to NASA and sit down in front of a dumb terminal and write Fortran programs. And I remember being really disillusioned because the computers that I was working on had no screens. Like all of the output was to line feed paper. And we were on the other side of this wall of tape drives. And we could just see all these wheels turning and they looked like open audio recorders or something like that. And I remember being really disillusioned because I was like, this feels so low tech. And I expected so much more from NASA. It was very strange, but it was a great experience. And um, I really learned a lot from it. And um, that was kind of cool. But like, I'm wondering if anyone else had that kind of impression where you think that from the cultural portrayal of science and the role of science that when you actually get into the heart of it, it's a lot more low tech than you expected. <laughs> I certainly have had that experience because I remember when I ended up getting the job at, at NASA originally, uh, I was expecting that all of NASA looked like those mission control rooms where <laughs> like most rooms you would walk into would have a huge picture of the earth and, you know, people would be typing away as they're, you know, sort of seeing this big earth projection in the room and, and that it would look really cool. Pretty much none of NASA looks that way whatsoever. There's like maybe one or two rooms across the whole 10 centers that look like that. And, uh, you know, I walking into NASA Ames for me, it was, you know, a lot of dilapidated buildings, a lot of buildings scheduled for, for demolition, a lot of buildings that say, just so you know, there's a bestest in this building. <laughs> it was, wow. um, yeah, the, the antithesis of like uh, glamour. And, and I remember being legitimately surprised that it looked that way. <laughs> yeah, I remember visiting Johnson Space Center in college and feeling the exact same way. Like, yeah, there was the mission control room, but everything else, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think all those buildings were basically built in the 60s during the moonshot pro program, the Apollo. And so they haven't really changed a whole lot of them because 
the budget's been dwindling ever since. So they have the buildings that they have. But the current administration loves space, right? So we'll see a huge investment in NASA, I'm sure. I heard he wants to have us go to Mars. I'm sure that'll change in a week. That's only because it's a red planet. Yeah, well. Oh, my God. Yes. Coraline, one. Everyone else, zero. (laughs) So, um, Ariel, one thing in your background, kind of during your bio reading, was kind of interesting to me. And that's you mentioned the influence of science fiction, the ideas from science fiction on the current development in science. Most of the science fiction I read is not hard science. I'm a huge fan of like Octavia Butler and dystopian cyberpunk futures. And I'm wondering, like, what's more relevant in our current political climate, hard science, science fiction or the science fiction that deals with socioeconomic and political scenarios where we're not seeing the best case scenario play out? Like, what should we be drawing on right now for inspiration? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's there's realism, which is, of course, you know, the most relevant stuff to right now is the socioeconomic dystopias pulling on for inspiration. I, I mean, in, in this climate, if, if you're talking about like something to look forward to, I'm not quite sure, you know, in, in terms of, you know, how science fiction is influencing specifically science and, and getting away from a little bit of this administration and everything, you know, I, I more often am seeing stuff that should be influencing science fiction rather than the other way around, which I think to me is incredibly encouraging. So with the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, which shortens to NIAC, uh, they are the only program at NASA that funds the more yeah futuristic sci-fi sort of out there concepts that could go on to transform future space missions, maybe 10, 20, 30 years down the line. But concepts that aren't quite ready to be implemented yet, but you can do the initial research and development for. So they're looking into things that um, some of which are science fiction inspired, like can we actually uh, hibernate humans on the way to Mars? But there's other ones that I haven't really seen actually in science fiction before. So there's a concept called the Comet Hitchhiker, which is a concept to send a spacecraft to a comet, have it harpoon into the comet, and then reel out an incredibly long tether, and then harvest the kinetic energy from the comet to be able to explore the solar system twice as fast. And so there's a lot of things like using comets as propulsion systems, which I haven't exactly seen in science fiction. Um, And so I think that's what's really exciting about right now to me in, uh, in space exploration and science is that I think we have sort of almost this equilibrium where science fiction is still inspiring science, but I think there's new things being developed in science that should be in science fiction. Yeah, I think that's great. And as somebody who like science fiction is my favorite thing ever, I love reading science fiction. Um, I think that something that people who are kind of on the cutting edge of using technology um, as we kind of change our culture and our societies, whether or not it's in space, like uh, science fiction provides this like futuristic fable of like what we can learn by not having to do the thing. It takes it to the the like farthest logical conclusion. So we can plan for those things well in advance of actually getting there, which is really, really nice. Um, because a lot of the time we are kind of going into this without being able to see all of the different aspects of um, what problems it could create. So science fiction helps us plan for, you know, those things that it ends up affecting in a positive or negative way. 
I remember reading um, H.P. Lovecraft's essay on horror fiction. Lovecraft, of course, being a very problematic person. I have to mention that every time I reference him. But um, he talked about horror as being a way for psychologically preparing for worst-case scenarios. So I think sci-fi does an interesting job of preparing us both for best-case scenarios and the unexpected consequences thereof, as well as worst-case scenarios. Yeah, I think a lot of people were kind of like, oh, I've read William Gibson. I know how this works now. Well, you know, I also think science fiction is a nice landscape to talk about contemporary moral issues because it can be painted in this world that you're not actually in so that it can give you some distance and then you can really start to examine things that would normally make you kind of uncomfortable, but it's a little bit easier if it's not really you and it's not really, you know, your community. It's this other community that's dealing with something that's very similar to yours. So it's easier to talk about race if you're talking about aliens. Yeah, if they're if they're blue people, you know, who have like random weird skin and other stuff, it's not the same, but it actually is the same issue. How much do you think science fiction influences is felt outside of hard sciences? Like, are there sociological studies on the culture of Star Trek? There totally is it, are. Is it pervasive? I know for sure that there's an entire group of anthropologists who study science fiction, and they're all about it. And I definitely think in some ways it's the thing that brings people to science because science fiction can be such a great story. And a lot of people who feel really intimidated by science can at least relate to the stories. Can I just mention on the subject of Star Trek that because I watched this episode the other day that Star Trek is a socialist post-hunger, post-poverty, etc. utopia. But Deanna Troy still went to a science conference and got sexually harassed. (laughs) That's so horrible. Well, it's the times as well. I mean, I guess like what I'm thinking of is when I first saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, which it took me a really long time to watch, it to me was more like a comment on the 60s than it was about the future. Yeah, I think that science fiction allows us to reflect a lot on kind of the cultural touch points and that kind of thing throughout time. So if you if you look at the difference in science fiction and the things that were focused on by decade, the things that people are afraid of, the things that people are interested in change pretty dramatically from decade to decade, from like subgenre to subgenre even. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a glimpse into what things uh, were like at the time it was written as well. So it's it's both like for when they're writing it compared to our time, it's like past science fiction looking at the future. So it's like looking behind us and looking forward at the same time, which yes. is really neat. Yes, totally. I remember reading about a similar sort of phenomenon where the, the cultural climate of the day influences both sci-fi and horror. And looking at someone did a cultural study of science fiction, fantasy and horror media that was being produced during the Cold War and how you can just trace the influence of the you know prevailing fears of the time and see how that's reflected in the media. So what is sci-fi telling us about the world we're living in right now? As somebody who reads a lot of science fiction from a lot of different time periods, I think that um, at least for what I read, because my viewpoint is going to be colored by that regardless, um, from what I read, definitely much more of um, social movements and that kind of thing are influencing the kind of science fiction that I've been reading, where those kinds of topics 
are much more at the forefront. And this is somebody who reads much more like sociological science fiction, you know, what are the effects of having this technology versus um, like the super hard science fiction, which is mainstream, you know, mostly just about the science and, and how it works and why it works and that kind of thing, and less so about how it actually impacts people. Seeing more um, socio sci-fi that's focusing on um, what it means to have um, a society where um, either racial racial justice, for instance, exists, or justice for women exists, or the exact opposite, where um, you know if things devolve from where they are right now, you know this is what we're looking at. So I, I'm seeing a lot of what the cultural changes that have happened over the past five or so years, especially around Black Lives Matter and the kind of new awakening for a lot of people to um, like this new generation of feminism. Are we seeing middle-aged white guys write about that, Ash? Or is it um, marginalized people who are finding a voice in the sci-fi community? So interesting fact about me. I do my best to only read books um, by and about marginalized people. So I could not tell you that. I I try very hard not to read um, and consume media that's created solely by, you know, very privileged people, because that just kind of replicates the problems that we already have. And in doing so, it kind of becomes like a, a PBS special for me, like it, it's entertainment, and I learned something from it, which is really good. So one thing that I've noticed uh, with some of the more recent literature is this idea of living with in the current time, the poor societal choices that had happened in the past, and dealing with that. So for example, I'm currently reading The Three-Body Problem, by, and I'm going to screw up his name, but I think it's uh, Sitchin Lu. And that's all, like, the first half of the book is all about the cultural revolution in China and everything that's still in place in China in this, of course, uh, sci-fi world, uh, but was completely influenced by the cultural revolution. And you look at that, uh, the same idea from the Expanse series, which has obviously been turned into a pretty successful TV show, where you have this Earth contingent and this Mars contingent, and they have these past societal problems with each other, as well as what are they called? The the people who live out outworld, like on the on the rocks. So you have you mean these the people, belters. The belters, yeah. thank you. And then you have the oppression of the belters, and they're still fighting with each other due to these societal problems they have, in the face of this great threat that's coming from outside, and and yet they still can't resolve their differences. So that's one thing that I've been seeing where. We're reflecting on the poor decisions that society has made in the past, but we still can't get past them to face the new threat. So earlier we talked about hard science fiction and soft science fiction. And I wonder, is this a cultural thing where if the author explains it in in great detail things related to physics or chemistry or maybe biology that we call it hard science fiction? But if it's instead sociology or anthropology, we call it soft science fiction. Am I mischaracterizing that? There's something maybe, at least for me, going on there. Well, we see the same thing with conference talks. We talk about hard talks and soft talks. Yes. Uh, And there's this conflation that even though hard and soft is the, the antonyms of each other, there's this other idea that the hard talks are because it's difficult. And here's the thing, like for most very technical people, it's the soft talks that are actually the difficult part. Like we're not wired necessarily to have that, the empathy that we're expected to have. So that's to me the hard part because it's something that I'm constantly working on and all the technical stuff comes fairly easy to me. I, I do think it's something that the expanse is, you know, I don't think they 
always hit, but I think they're attempting to sort of blend it. I think it's, it's the first science fiction I've seen in a, in a while that attempts to do that because it's a show that's so, so steeped in politics. And because it's steeped in politics, it's steeped in, you know, socioeconomic realities of, of their world and everything. But, uh, you know, what the expense usually gets a lot of acclaim for is, uh, you know, how hard they work on trying to get the science right or mostly right in the show, um, on, on the TV series, uh, specifically. And I think, you know, um, I think it's, it's nice to see a science fiction series that really does care about sort of building a world, uh, around politics and, uh, social issues, uh, but also really cares about uh, if we spin series a certain way that the gravity will work exactly this way. And, you know, if someone's head gets blown off while it's in zero G, this is exactly how it's going to look or something. You know, I mean, some of it's definitely, uh, you know, more um, fantastical than than others. But the fact that they're working sort of both sides of those issues is unfortunately rare, but I'm hoping they'll set more of a trend to really dig into both sides because yeah, too often it's one or the other and it's a little bit too much void of reality in a lot of science fiction because they're sort of um, picking their darlings and, and not fully doing world building on issues that I think people would be genuinely interested in. I'm curious. I'm really glad we talked about, um, we mentioned soft talks and hard talks and in terms of conferences. I typically give what is referred to, and I hate the term soft talks. Um, but at a keynote I gave in South Africa this year, I gave a, a talk called metaphors are similes. Similes are like metaphors. And it was about the way we think. And I went into graph theory and it was really interesting. The breakdown of people who talked to me after the talk. It was mainly men who came up to thank me for my introduction to graph theory. And and I had people tell me, like, it never made sense to me before you explained it. And it was mainly women and people of color who came up to me to talk about the parts of the talk that were more about how brains function and how we interact with each other and how we model thought. And I wonder if a show like The Expanse is using the hard sci-fi to draw in audiences that would otherwise not be interested in the sort of political drama or the sociological questions that are being asked by the show. I have a question totally. for your question. Do you think that just like with the audience of your talk, that the people who um, need that message are still missing it and looking instead at the science? That's my underlying concern. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who gives a lot of those kinds of talks as well, I mean, I tell people that, like people are much more complicated and there are so many more variables with humans than there are with computers. Like people are the the really hard problem in computer science, in my opinion. And um, as somebody who gets kind of boxed into this, gives soft, soft talks, even though I'm an engineer and I'm talking about the way that these kinds of things apply to the things that we create, the way that we interact with each other and the way that we're shaping the world, you know, you still end up with the people that you expect to be in the room. Like the people who need those kinds of messages most are somewhere else, you know, especially if it's a multi-track conference, they're, you know, sitting somewhere else or they're picking out the things that seem most relevant to them in the understanding of the world that they already hold. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I have some frustration right now because I, I had this talk idea. I'm working on a book on empathy for software developers in particular. It's called um, The Compassionate Coder. And I have a chapter devoted to modeling emotions as state machines. 
And that seemed to me like a really great way of getting people in the room who would not otherwise attend to talk about empathy because I'm modeling it in terms that they would understand. And frustratingly, not a single conference has picked up that talk yet. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who runs a conference, like in case you don't know, I run a conference called AlterConf that brings together marginalized people to talk about these different aspects of sociology and the way that they interact with technology. So whether you're talking about uh, racial justice and having to um, go into work where you're the only person of color and having a lot of rather ignorant white people ask you questions or treat you in a certain way while in your, you know, out of work life, you know, you're fighting for your life and you're fighting for justice. Like that's, that's a huge difference. Talking about those kinds of things are still seen as something that's less mainstream. It's less important because those aren't the concerns that more privileged um, people have. And those tend to be the people that make up the vast majority of the industry. Um, so it's a, a self-perpetuating problem. But I guess one of the questions I would have about that is that even if you are privileged and you don't understand other people who are not like you, they're still people. So why don't you, why are you not interested in understanding how people work in general so that you can actually build better technology? I'm still trying to understand why there is a, a break there between, you know, people who only want to focus on just the hard science and the engineering and don't really want to talk about the other people parts because they kind of feel like it's extraneous soft stuff because it's not always about the, the social justice part. Sometimes it's just like, do you understand how people think, how they act, how they use things? Yeah. I think that's uh, an unfortunate, well, not even unfortunate. It's just a reality, especially on the the science side of things is that uh, the science culture and science industry really suffers from trying to promote that science is this thing that exists without humans, as opposed to it being a human pursuit. I think you see it everywhere and it really seeps in and really sort of insidious ways. I, I, I find that pursuit of science being something where an objective truth exists out there. And if we humans weren't here, you know, science would still be there. And I think people take that as being almost literal that science, instead of it being humans trying to actually explore and understand and, and find the objective truth for which we live in, it's seen as this thing that is completely external to us. Um, and I think this gets promoted in so many different ways and in, 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 in so many different places and by people who aren't even aware that they're really promoting this. And I think the science industry really suffers from unknowingly promoting things that um, are actually disrespectful or harmful to people. And it's not that I think they're completely clueless. I think they're just not using a lot of critical thinking about how things affect people. And so because science is seen as this thing that's devoid of humans, they end up thinking that you can just focus on the work in front of you and that it doesn't really have to affect humans. But the reality is, you know, if you're someone fighting for science to be accessible, it's not only, you know, to me, my argument to someone who doesn't really care about the human side of things would be that it's not just about caring so much about like who is doing the work and making sure that, you know, marginalized communities are getting into science. Obviously, that's something I care very deeply about. But I, I would tell them, you know, don't you agree that there is a lot of underfunded, uh, overlooked, not appreciated science out there? 
Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people would agree with that statement, even if they're sort of the heads down, I don't need to pay attention to humans thing. Well, the reality is, is that there are humans behind that underfunded, overlooked science. And a lot of them are going to be people who are a marginalized community. So to me, it's like, if you care that there's not a lot of research into how humans have sex, or there's not a lot of research into a specific type of snail, yeah, it could be a white guy you know, cisgender, you know, who's doing that sort of work. But there's so many people who are not getting funded, who are not being included in science that you start to think about, okay, if we're not really making sure to find every last human we can and make science accessible to them and and make it equitable, then how much science are we actually losing out on? And it's quite a bit. And so that would be my argument to someone who's not very human centric. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, it, it's, it's something that is just incredibly frustrating is I think uh, promoting science that it's not a, a human endeavor. And when you do that, you forget about how much science we don't actually have. And, and I think that's a difficult concept for most people, whether it's space exploration or tech or science is trying to have them think about exactly what we haven't discovered yet, what we don't know, how we're maybe not far as far along as we should be in, uh, you know, our knowledge of something. Also, the assumption that as scientists, as people who are lovers of science, that what we bring to the table is 100% objective, also influences the science that we create and the way that that science influences all of society. I mean, there have been lots of studies and research projects and that kind of thing that in their time were determined to be good science that we know now are motivated by misogyny and racism and just general lack of empathy and the assumptions that we make about other people. So the idea in all of these different fields that we're coming into this 100% objective, we don't care about who the people are that are interacting with this or who are affected by it is 100% false, you know, that we we need to look at all of those different aspects. And one part of being able to correct that is making sure that we do have all different kinds of people involved in science at all different levels. I think we see the same sort of thing in the open source community, which is a little like nearer and dearer to my heart or more familiar to me, where the default open source developer is maybe a 40 year old um, cisgender heterosexual white male employed by a large corporation to do open source and simply doesn't see what is not being created by people who are denied access to the resources and the exposure and the communities that will support them to solve problems for people other than the 25-year-old Silicon Valley guy named Chad. (laughs) It's disheartening to hear that science suffers the same sort of thing where the problems that are being solved or the solutions that are being presented are being presented as if they come from this objective reality when in fact they're serving the default human being who most people think of as Chad. Yeah, I think one of the issues of being in a society that is not post-scarcity is that we by default have this idea of what's in it for me. And not only that, but what's in it for me right now. And if you're not seeing the value in someone else's work in your life, then you tend to dismiss it. And so that applies to so much science because you don't necessarily see what's the value in someone doing space research uh, anything in space. And then you look, you know, 20 years down the line and it's going to revolutionize your life, but it's difficult to understand how that's going to affect you so far into the future because we have to do that now in order to 
have an effect on you in the future. Yep. Yeah. And that we're oftentimes using marginalized people as resources and non-consenting resources. Like there's a, there's a movie coming out right now and there was a recent book about Henrietta Lacks, a black woman in, I want to say the fifties or sixties who went to the hospital with a type of cancer. And uh, instead of properly treating her, the scientist took her cells and used them and still use them today for a lot of research. And her family has not benefited in, in any real way. So that science in particular is built on a long history of racial injustice um, and gender injustice um, and continues to this day. Do you think that's because of what Ariel was saying about taking the human out of it and just seeing it as an objective pursuit? I think that by the people doing the science, they see it as a worthy sacrifice on that person's part, even though that person hasn't consented to that sacrifice. In Henrietta Lacks's case in particular, she wasn't even ever notified that this was happening to her. Um, so she didn't have the opportunity to consent because she wasn't aware that that was something that was going to happen at all. I think that definitely agreeing with Ariel, because they're not seeing um, particular individuals as humans, it becomes something that they can kind of zoom out from. But also, it's perpetuating the same problems that we see societally as a whole. And the idea that science isn't affected by those things, or that science doesn't further that kind of oppression is untrue. I feel like we could we could talk a little bit about some of the stories we've seen over the past year or two about biases and machine learning as an example of what happens when you treat data and people as objective points in space as opposed to complex beings who are intersecting with society along a lot of different axes of oppression. Well, you know, it makes me think about Facebook and the whole fake news and what it appears as them not really taking much responsibility for it. Because apparently, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it, but a lot of what ended up getting through was partly because they removed the humans from the process of even filtering the news in the first place because they believed that it was appropriate to just use the, the machine learning. It had been, it had matured enough, I guess, in their perspective to be able to filter the properly the news for people. And then obviously it was not, it was putting out a lot of things that people were promoting that were not true. And then now Facebook is not really doing much about that, which concerns me because it makes me question um, when you do the, when you have made these big decisions that affect so many people, since there's over a billion people who use Facebook, and then you decide that you're not responsible for that, but it is affecting people, then who is really to blame? And I know that's kind of a different question than what you were suggesting, but it still kind of gets back to this, what you do to people and how it affects everything else. And since you're not really considering how other people are going to be affected or are being affected as enough of a factor to make changes, then what does that really mean? I think it's time to bring up the classic Jeff Goldblum quote of your scientists were so focused on whether they could, they didn't question whether they should. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think what, what really needs to happen is that there needs to be a whole lot more human learning in the field of machine learning. It's terrifying that the companies that are that are making the greatest progress in making machine learning, putting putting machine learning to some sort of practical value are also not studying its societal and political and cultural effects. That's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. So when people like Elon Musk talk about how AI is scary because it's going to kill us one day, I'm not worried about the AI. I'm more worried about something like this, because when you have masses and masses of people using your platform, 
and you make even a small change, it's going to have a huge effect. And it seems as though a lot of at least these tech companies are not prepared to be able to handle when they do that. And that's very concerning to me. Yeah. And that kind of technology, when it, especially when it comes to things like machine learning and kind of crunching big data is being used in a lot of real world, long lasting scenarios. Like when, you know, people go before a judge to uh, determine what a sentence will be for any given crime, you know, all of their information is fed into an algorithm that spits out what their likely recidivism rate would be. Um, so they're being judged based on all of the data of all of the people that they've collected before, not taking into the account that, uh, you know, some communities are far more police than others, that being poor makes you a target for, you know, the police. So you're far more likely to be arrested, being a person of color, being a trans woman, all of those things make it much more likely that you're going to end up in the criminal justice system. And them using all of those traits, you know, to determine how long you're going to be in prison leads to this huge epidemic that we've had over the entire United States history of the uh, vast number of people that we have in our prison systems, um, people that are put on death row, uh, and all of those different kinds of things, you know, so it's it's not just how we're using technology specifically in tech spaces, but also, you know, how we're determining whether or not we should be firing teachers, or hiring more police officers, or, you know, over policing different areas and doing things like stop and frisk, all of those things motivated based on the machine learning and the big data that we're you know, using and collecting every single day. So Ariel, I know your time with us today was very limited. I wanted to really thank you for participating in this conversation. It's a very important conversation and it was really great talking to you. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Bye, Ariel. Bye, Ariel. Bye, Ariel. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, let's take this time to do a shout out to one of our patrons, Dave Tapley. Dave is, is a patron at the $10 level. And we want to say thank you so much to everybody who participates on Patreon. So I wanted to bring back up what Brad said about scarcity and also point out Conway's law, which is that organizations which design systems produce designs that are copies of the communication structures of the organizations that produce them. Uh, my point here is that if you look at the structure of our society, scarcity and exploitation are both really deeply baked into the structure of our society. And so I don't think it should surprise us when we find those qualities in the systems we produce. Yeah. And scarcity isn't equally distributed is something else that's really important to note. I mean, there are definitely communities that experience far more scarcity in, uh, you know, in, in income and access to education and access to opportunities and material goods than others do. Yeah, all, all of these things have to be understood through uh, looking at the power dynamics and relationships between groups and people. Yeah, and I think that what it's going to take is sufficiently large and or sufficiently frequent external stimuli to bump the system into a different track, if you will. And we're we're running on a negative feedback loop, which means that any sort of deviation uh, gets negatively fed back into the, the inputs to bring it back to homeostasis. And so what we need is a large enough stimulus to push us out of that rut of getting us back into that groove. I'm using too many metaphors here. but <laughs> if, if, you, if you continue the physics metaphor, it's both of the size of the impulse and how long it's applied for. Well, also, because we're 
you know, a human society, sometimes frequency of small impulses is going to be enough. Yeah, there's a um another. I'm a big fan of these laws. Um, Gerald Weinberg has a law that he it's an aphorism, I guess, that he calls the law of cucumbers and brine, which is that cucumbers get pickled far more than brine gets cucumbered. And That's the idea funny. there is that if you have a small system interacting with a much larger system, the small system tends to change much more than the large system. The small system tends to become more like the large system far more than the large system tends to become like the small system, especially when there's a power dynamic involved, as there always is. Uh, the way to combat that is through persistent action. Find something you- that you can do and keep doing it until it works. Do you think our issue is we're hoping that the impulse comes in the form of technology versus human intervention? I think that we all tend to prefer technical solutions to problems, even when they aren't technical problems. And the secret there is that there aren't really any technical problems. They're all just people problems that we try to apply technology to with varying success. I'm not sure if that answered your question. No, it definitely does, especially as technologists. I feel like we always want to kind of extract what can be um, easily repeated by a machine so we don't have to do the same thing over and over again. But I think that ends up perpetuating the problem. You know, we're, we're feeding off of these, I don't want to say mixed signals, we're feeding off of incomplete or incorrect data. Um, so we're building on that again and again and again. Um, and when you start with that shaky foundation, it's, you know, not going to lead to the outcome that we hope or want. Oh, I think I get what you're saying, Ash. So it's kind of like because in the beginning, we don't want to do the messy stuff. We'd rather do the very clean, I know how to build this stuff. Then later, we just get lazy about it and just rely on it, even though there's no proof that what we started out with is even right. I think it may be interesting to unpack some of the reasons that we prefer to focus on technology. I think some of it might be that our experiences in technology, we have a better understanding of technology. It's easier to form mental models of technology that are useful to us. And if you compare that to understanding people and their interactions, it's much more difficult. We have much less experience doing it. So I think those are or at least are some of the reasons why people are, are reaching for technical solutions and looking at problems as technical problems. If we look at the distribution of job roles at a typical technology company, what you'll see is oftentimes you have, well, ignoring the sales aspect side, but um, more on the creative side of, of a business, what you'll see is generally many more engineers than designers and UX people. And when you have that disparity in number of people, uh, the engineers tend to have more weight. And that's just the generally accepted way of doing business, even though it might not actually be the correct way of doing business. I really take exception to that, too, because like I think one of the more interesting developments in software development or in particular web development over the past few years is the DevOps movement, where people have started to think and say and do that the software we produce is inseparable from the way we deploy it and the way it operates in production. I hate the fact that we have to have a specialist in UX or UI and sort of separate that from the engineering work when really all of us should be generalists and all of us should be considering the human impact of what we're building at every step in the process. That's not something that should be delegated. 
Yeah. And even stepping farther back from that, because we're so heavily siloed, especially when we're talking about technology as an industry, we so heavily silo all of these different roles. We're also not learning from each other. So I I work with a a lot of startups and a lot of um, other technology companies to tell them that the way that they need to start changing things so they can have a more inclusive culture so they can actually support and sustain any kind of diversity internally. And one of the things is making sure that everybody is on a level playing field when it comes to different departments, especially because the vast majority of diversity, the vast majority of marginalized people exist in roles outside explicitly engineering. Those roles include things like uh, what we would call customer service or dev relations, any kind of front-facing, consumer-facing role. People who tend to know our products and our services very well, who tend to know our users and our consumers consumers very well. They don't have any say in the way that products are created. They might pass things on to an engineer if they can't solve the problem, but that doesn't then get turned into a, hey, this is a UX problem or, you know, hey, this is not what our users want or need. So failing that, how are we able to create the best products and services if Internally, we can't even communicate the things that we are building and the things that uh, our, our consumers and our users actually want and need. There's a, an emphasis on speed and delivery that gets in the way of that process, too. I know with my work at GitHub, I had a lot of ideas for things that I wanted to put in place right away. And I fell into that same trap that you're talking about, Ash. I wanted to get a technology solution out the door to solve what I saw as like some severe problems in open source and the way that people come together to do open source. But luckily, we have um, a very talented UX specialist on our team. And we don't release anything without in-depth collaboration with our UX person. And that's really opened my eyes to the fact that if you create a technology, even one that sets out to address an inequality or an injustice, if people can't use it or if you don't understand how people are going to use it, you might as well have not wasted the effort. So to bring it back to space just a little bit, uh, (laughs) this reminds me a lot of my past experiences as an aerospace engineer. This idea of silos is not unique to the software tech industry. We had them in aerospace as well, but they weren't necessarily institutionalized silos. Sometimes it's just an individual who wanted to live in a silo by themselves. So on a payload team that I worked on, We had software engineers, we had electrical engineers, we had mechanical engineers, which is what I was, and we had scientists. So the best teammates that I had on that payload were the ones who would overlap what they did with one or more of the other sub teams. As a mechanical engineer, I worked a lot with the electrical team in order to make sure that, for instance, the boards that they were designing fit well within the mechanical idea of what we were building. And working with another team like that is is what made the best engineers on the team. And, and the people who decided to erect silos for themselves were the people that we just didn't enjoy working with. I fear that the way that we are producing software engineers is only emphasizing that siloing because we're training people for front-end jobs. We're training people for, you know, maybe you come out of a CS degree, you have no critical thinking background, you have no sociology background, you have no anthropology background, you are solving problems algorithmically. It seems like the people who are generalists have either been in the field long enough that they got their start when those areas of specialization didn't exist, like me, or people who are self-taught. 
Uh, I don't know that I agree with that. I work with a lot of companies where in the beginning, it makes the most sense to have the most generalists because everybody has to be able to work on everything at once. I think what we need to move toward is that we have multidisciplinary teams. So, you know, you should have somebody from marketing and somebody from customer support and an engineer and somebody who works with DevOps um, and all of these different roles, you know, product uh, manager and, you know, all of those things working directly together because that specialization does bring about a lot of important things where they're seeing issues before they can come up. Um, they can create the best and most efficient solutions to problems where generalists might not be able to. And especially because we see very many people that are looking um, at getting into the industry um, as people that are new graduates from university diversity versus things like boot camps or um, or are self-taught, especially when we're looking at marginalized people, that helps to even that playing field. You know, having somebody who is, for instance, a full stack developer, having your entire team made of people that are full stack developers means that you're looking for somebody who has a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. And that's going to mean that you're only um, looking at people who have been in the industry for a long time. That's a very fair point. I guess I would refine what I said a little bit. I think that there needs to be at least a common language so that there can be conversations across these silos. And I think generalists maybe are, are better equipped to have some of those conversations than people who are siloed into, oh, you're only a front-end developer. You only know JavaScript. We're not going to talk to you about these other sort of situations. So I guess what I'm looking for is people who are well-informed enough to know that they need to tap into the expertise of a specialist. At the yes. risk of playing my own little one-note samba here, I want to point out that it's much easier for a manager to blame a line engineer than the reverse, and it's much easier for an engineer to blame a customer service person than the reverse, and this isn't a coincidence. These are subgroups that have different power, different status within the organization, and you'll find that blame and buck passing always flows downhill in a power differential. Yes, absolutely. I think that that just points to the fact that Although we're recognizing that the multidisciplinary teams are really important, that the person who leads that team is probably the most important because that person will have the power to say that the customer support person has a voice and that they should be heard and that the engineers can't just talk over what the UX designers would say is the best thing to do. Yeah, the correction here is to find a way to equalize those groups, to put them all on an equal playing field. It's, you know, diversity and equality is, is the solution. Are the people that we're promoting to managers aware of that responsibility? I think that's the who biggest problem. to managers? Yeah, who, who is the manager, I think, is the biggest problem. Because even, I don't even worry so much about the equality if you have managers who are brokering that conversation. But I think a lot of times that's not what's happening. Speaking as someone who went from a technical role to a managerial role, and I think I can speak for everyone who has done the same transition, is that that's really hard. And a lot of our companies uh, do not provide the training necessary to get, get any good at it. And The biggest you know, understatement I've heard today. <laughs> and, you know, like as one of the owners of my company, like the only person to blame is myself. And so – you know, we have had called business coaches come in and, and help us through that process of realizing that not everything is solvable with technology. You actually have to listen to people and all that stuff. These are things that I effectively knew innately, but wasn't willing to bet the farm on and, and actually execute on. 
But uh, yeah, it's it's tough. What happens in most organizations is that someone says, you're the best technical person we have. We're now going to give you this other job that is completely different where almost none of your skills transfer. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, and you're no longer touching code. So like wh- whatever you feel like you have control over, you're going to try to exert that control anyway. So promoting them almost makes the situation worse because now they want to have that control. They're backseat driving is basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I want to emphasize here quickly is that knowing how to treat people equally and creating a culture where people are treated equally is how you begin to fix these power differential problems that I think cause a lot of the problems we're describing. And so equality isn't just for marginalized people. It helps everyone. It helps the entire organization. Absolutely. So what can we do as people participating in the tech industry to affect that kind of change? I honestly think that the most radical thing that we can do is to listen to people. I don't know why it's so difficult for very many people, but, you know, being able to listen and actually hear what somebody is saying and where they're coming from, you know, oftentimes people will tell you exactly what they need, exactly what they need to change, exactly what they need to be successful and to be an integral part of your team. So, you know, listen to what people need, listen to what people are saying and actually take action on it. I would like to propose something to you. I would like to propose that the most important quality here is congruence. And I'd like to talk about what that might mean. What do you hear when I say the word congruence? Trigonometry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's one. So one thing that congruency might mean or being congruent might mean is saying what you think and, and thinking what you say, right? There's a congruence between your thoughts and your actions. I think that's the one that a lot of us have, have used. The one that I want to offer, uh, and this is again from Gerald Weinberg, is congruency as being able to pick the best action in the situation, uh, which means being able to overcome your biases, being able to overcome your lack of information about the situation to find the best action to take, taking everything into consideration and then taking that action. But Rain, how do we get there? One of the best things that you can do is to listen until you know all of the tensions and where everyone is coming from. You can't act congruently because you won't have all the all the possibilities available to you. Now I wish that I paid attention to what Ash said instead of just preparing my next point. That's a joke. <laughs> I would add that in addition to listening, uh, another key quality or key decision that you have to make for yourself is to recognize your own biases and try to set them aside when you're listening. Yeah. You can't act so, congruently if you're if you're taking actions based on your preconceived notions, your emotions are overriding your decision making, things like that. And uh not to bring Jerry Weinberg in again, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he wrote a book called The Rules of Consulting. And the first rule for a consultant coming into a larger company is there's always a problem. <laughs> Otherwise you wouldn't be brought in. And the second rule is that probably the more important one is it's always a people problem. Yeah, I snuck that one in earlier, but I, too, didn't want to make the entire thing about Jerry all the time. (laughs) Yeah. So but as a very technical person, it is so hard to realize that it is always a people problem, whether it's because they don't know how to hire and train people. uh, They don't know how to attract people to do the work. And that's why you're being brought in to do the technical stuff. Or if there's a just an internal issue with the team, like that's a people problem. That's not necessarily a technical problem. Sure, technical problems come along with it, but it's really a people problem. And it's so hard to drop the bias that everything can be fixed with technology. 
I can share. I'm gonna write a gem to remind people that it's a people problem. Would that would that be <laughs> that be good? I can share um, something I've been working on getting better at that I hope will make this easier, which is when someone approaches me or talks to me about something that I don't agree with, uh, I try, I'm trying to consider their perspective, even if I don't like their perspective, but to actually try it on for size before I dismiss it. Because I think it's easier to try to have a conversation with a person if you can find some sort of common thread. And it doesn't mean that I have to accept everything that they're suggesting, but it does mean that if I at least really think it through and see, well, maybe, maybe there is a point that I'm missing that I, I'm not as angry about it. So it's, I can actually hear what they're saying as opposed to, you know, being like, stop bringing this up. I don't want to hear this. This is stupid, which is normally how I feel when people do that. That presupposes an environment where discourse is mutually appreciated. There are some people that. It's pointless to do that exercise with because they will not engage and they will never change. Well, I don't, a, I don't intend to engage with them. It's more so for me. So I don't always respond to them. I just think it in my own head. Because yeah, I, I think this is all predicated on people acting in good faith at all. And if that's not the case, then none of this should apply. No, I don't expect people to act in good faith. It's more like if I'm having an argument with my sister, for instance, like she wants to have pasta for dinner and I want to have, you know, salad, then it's easier if I actually consider why she wants it, even if I don't agree, even if it might be stupid. But if I do actually think about it, it makes me less angry. That's something I've just noticed because I think a lot of times we respond from our already set place where we already have a response for this and it's, and it's already gearing up to go. And yes, there are people who are just trying to rally you up. So I don't expect that everybody is acting in good faith, but it doesn't mean that I have to be angry. And if I can find out how somebody else is thinking, even if I don't agree with them, it still helps me understand how to deal with people better. I would just caution that. Emotions are perfectly valid and emotional responses are perfectly valid and emotions can give us the energy to have conversations that we wouldn't ordinarily have. So I get angry a lot. I try at least to choose how I direct that anger and how I use that anger and try and turn it into something that's constructive and positive. But one of the things I learned through the period of my transition is that emotions are valid inputs to every thought process. I'm reminded, too, of feedback that my manager gave me. I tend to hold very strong opinions. I think everyone who knows me knows that. And what she told me once, after observing me basically shut down a conversation with people who didn't have the same perspective that I did, was that it's incredibly important to weigh the impact of your words and how you're saying them, but more so when you're right. More so when you're oh, right? So, like, all the time. Yeah, because it's not enough to be right if you can't convince someone of what the outcome should be according to your perceptions or according to your experience. If you can't communicate that back to them and you just sort of you can shut a conversation down and not reach someone that you really needed to reach in order to to affect a change. And the stakes are so much higher when you are right because of the perspective that you have or the experiences that you're drawing on. And it's so hard for the person who in this hypothetical is not right to admit that they're not right. And not just to you, but also to themselves. Like what you want to do is make it as easy as possible for them to make the transition to being right. This is all, of course, presupposing that you are right in a situation. But in that situation, like you do want to make sure that you make it as easy as possible for that person to see the light for themselves and admit it to you. 
And it's really a matter of choosing how to approach the conversation. Are you using pathos or ethos? And that's a very tricky subject. And Ash brought up in chat that um, the point I, I raised verges on tone policing, and it absolutely does verge on tone policing. It's difficult and complicated and messy, and I don't have an answer to that. Yeah. A lot of human problems absolutely are messy. <laughs> um, I, I think that it's also something that was hard won over many years of me looking at these kinds of problems to realize that we can't change anybody's mind. We can present them with all of the information that we have and the reasons why we believe the things that we do, but we can't make anybody do anything else, especially when it comes to any kind of issues around justice, when it can feel like you have a conveyor belt of people that want you to educate them about something that is so personal that, you know, it affects your life every single day and your survival every single day. Um, you know, it's not on you to approach those conversations in a teacher-like way because that is not your job. It is on us as privileged people. Um, there was a really great article that was posted this morning and I was, I was kind of tweeting about it. You know, it's on us as privileged people to look at those situations and to learn from them, you know, that we need to do our research, that we need to understand how we're perceived and how we benefit from the mistreatment of other people, whether that is a identity type power dynamic or that is a manager to employee type dynamic. Um, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the same kind of thing. You know, how can we how can we look at um, the way that we communicate and the way that we come across to make sure that uh, we're all hearing the same message? I wanted to look at, Coraline, the example you provided of being right, but then not doing the extra work to figure out how to communicate that effectively through this framework for congruence. It's part of that thing that Jerry talks about, because this is, I think, the most useful thing I've ever found for helping me understand these situations. So for any interaction to be congruent, there are three parts that have to have an equal share. And a failure of congruence is often leaving one or more of those out. So the being right, but then getting it wrong thing is not caring about the other person, only caring about yourself and the facts of the situation. Can I ask a really simple question? Yeah. How do we know that we're right? I don't know if you're asking me, but I we don't. <laughs> I can I can make this very concrete. I can talk about the situation. We were talking about the ability of a project owner to edit comments in an issue thread. And the case was being made for why a project maintainer needed to be able to edit comments in an issue. And I pointed out that through my own experience with harassment on GitHub, that let's take in particular the Opalgate incident, if the maintainers of the Opalgate project have been able to manipulate the words that I was saying in that issue, it would have been disastrous. I mean, it was already a disaster. It was already a terrible situation and already nothing good came of it. But if I was not in control of the way my words were being portrayed, it would have gone much, much worse. And I shut down the conversation by centering my own experience and just saying, no, a maintainer should never be able to edit comments. And I think about that conversation a lot and like, what did I do? Or what could I have done differently to have made a case that was very personal and that did have a lot of personal impact on me, but that was also effective. But let me step back. So I assume that there was some person that brought up 
the idea for or the the reasons why they thought that it was valid for a maintainer to be able to edit a comment. So wouldn't they also feel that they were right? Yeah, you know what exactly. I'm getting at. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't a matter of right or wrong opinion, but I think in this case, there's a right and wrong decision that, that could be made. And that what I failed to do was to bring to light some of the unintended consequences of what that particular feature would bring in a way that put it on equal footing with the, the valid reasons for allowing someone to edit a comment. Yeah, I, I guess my my biggest concern here is how do we know that we're right? Like, how, how did you know that you were right versus the other individual on the other side of this who hadn't experienced those kinds of things who thought that, you know, often people say, well, the good outweighs the bad, like, I'll sacrifice your experience for the greater good kind of thing. Like, how do we determine that? I wish I had an answer to that, Ash. <laughs> Well, we never know that we're right even in, in scientific things, which is traditionally an area where we can say, yes, that is proven to be right. For example, with the discovery of relativity, right? A lot of things were kind of thrown out the door or modified to accommodate relativity. And not to turn this into the Jerry Weinberg show, but there's this idea called the orange juice test. And the long and short of it is if someone says yes or no to a request, then they've probably failed the orange juice test. Instead, they should counter back with the repercussions of the request. So one way is that we could hypothetically say in this editing GitHub comments situation, like, oh, well, we could create a thing where the project maintainer who wants to uh, edit a comment has to pay $50 to buy a GitHub personnel's person time in order to review whether this is a censorship or changing someone's words or not. Like, that's is not necessarily a great solution, but it's exploring the possibilities. I don't know where I'm taking that, but <laughs> that's around the idea of like, do you ever know that you're right? And you really don't. If you make the assumption, then you can start at least moving forward. I, I guess we we could get very philosophical here and say that <laughs> right or wrong depends on the context, depends on the situation in which you're asking the question. I just feel like my job is making sure that we put the needs of marginalized people first that we consider the impact of what we do on the most vulnerable people first. And that is very complicated, but that is the, the position of advocacy that I have to take. And that makes me feel justified in what I do. And it, that makes me feel right. And that influences the way I'm going to interact with other people. Yeah, I guess my only concern is when you meet somebody who feels that they're just as concerned about, quote unquote, the greater good as we are about, you know, what it means to have full participation from all different kinds of people. You know, I'm absolutely on your side here. And I do not at all mean to be a devil's advocate, just that so often we run into the situation where ethically, I know I'm correct. But technically, you know, from a literal technical perspective, they may feel that they're right. So who ends up having more weight in those conversations? And how do you, you know, come to any real um, conclusion, whether that's some kind of compromise or an actual change that moves it towards something that's much more ethical? I guess I could point out that this is a conflict between two incompatible sets of values. And historically, the way that's resolved is the person with power makes the decision. And then that's how, how it goes. Yes. But I'm saying, how do we mitigate that then? Yeah, I I got nothing for you. <laughs> <laughs> People are so hard. If someone doesn't value doing the right thing, how do you get them to value doing the right thing? Yeah, I don't know. 
I, I feel like this is so much of the work toward actual real justice in so many different areas is like, how do we get people to see what justice is? Because right now we don't have a shared vocabulary for that. Um, and how do we get them to empathize, even if they don't fully understand it, they can take, you know, someone's word for it, that this is going to have negative consequences that you may not fully understand. And therefore, this isn't the right decision. I think maybe the most important first step that we can take is having those conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this reminds me of the book, The Art of Negotiation. When you hear that title, you think, oh, this is how you beat other people at negotiating. And that's not at all what the book is about. What it's about is trying to forget the what of the negotiation and trying to understand the why of the negotiation. Why is this other person advocating for this? Why am I advocating for this? Because it's so easy to focus on what you're advocating for, but to pull back and think about why and figure out why they are and meshing those two things together uh, often results in a win-win situation. Not always, but the majority of the book actually focuses on those win-win situations because you're focusing on why instead of what. I'd just like to say a couple things. Uh, one is that maybe Brad and I should go get a room and read Gerald Weinberg books to each other. That and one was not written by Gerald. <laughs> I, I know, I know. This has been an amazing conversation, and I am so happy that we had the three of you on the show today. What we'd like to do at the end of an episode is to reflect on the conversation that we've had and see what sort of takeaways or calls to action may have come up or things that we want to spend some more time thinking about. Rain, do you want to do you want to go first and talk about like what you got out of this conversation? Yeah, um, I guess what I got out of it is that these issues go straight up to the top in terms of the philosophical ladder we're trying to climb of what do we value? How do we get other people to share our values? It doesn't get easier by ignoring that the problem is that difficult and pretending that it's just technical. I think for me, I've talked about some of the challenges that I faced in doing the work that I do and trying to be informed by the perspectives that I try to be informed by. So there's definitely a personal aspect in terms of thinking about how I can be a more effective change agent. But also thinking back on the earlier part of our conversation, I want to reflect more and maybe do more to promote the idea that it's responsibility of technologists to Think about the social impact of the technical solutions that, that they're making, whether that means by being better informed and striving to be a generalist or by making sure that we are inclusive and giving voice to people with different perspectives and different levels of expertise on our teams to make sure that we're, we're addressing problems deeply and not just from one particular silo. Ash, what are your thoughts? I have so many. I think that we all need to understand approaching any kind of problem, whether it's in technology or in any other field, kind of requires us to bring this multidisciplinary approach, um, understanding how we are, are looking at a problem ethically, how we're looking at it technically, and how we're looking at it from a you know, a human point of view. You know, why why do we actually need this? Why is this the way that we're doing it? And what are the potential effects? You know, I think that often we're only looking at at what we have simplified as the problem and therefore creating simplified um, solutions. Um, so I think a lot of people brought up uh, a lot of good points about being much more broad when we're looking at where we should be pulling information from and how we should be applying it. What about you, Brad? So I like what Ariel said earlier about how if you take out the humans, the science, the laws of nature still exist, you know, in the absence of humans. 
And if we look at the science discussion that's happening around the world today, it's messy and complicated. And I guess the answer to why that is, is humans. We're the reason it's messy and complicated. And if we want to advance the frontiers of our understanding of the laws of nature through science, we're going to have to figure out how to work better together and have the empathy to understand other people's points of view and convince others and ourselves that we can't always assume that we're right. Because that's the whole point of of science is to learn and understand. This has been an absolutely amazing episode. And to give people a kind of behind the scenes look, we talked about what we're going to talk about at the very beginning as we're sort of organizing things. And we came up with space cats and burritos. Sadly, we did not touch on burritos, but I think some other perhaps more important topics did get covered. And I hope everyone has enjoyed this conversation. If you want to continue the conversation, go to patreon.com slash greater than code, pledge at any level and come and talk to Ariel and Ash and Brad and the panelists about the topics that were brought up. Um, We'd love to continue the conversation with you. Ash, Brad, Ariel, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was really amazing. This is definitely one of my favorite episodes and um, I'm so pleased you joined us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. I had a great time. That wraps up episode 29. We will talk to you all next week.